produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons. On this edition of the program, we discuss how the brain builds trust. We know the brains of young people, teenagers are very plastic, and that's less so the case in adulthood. We require very specific conditions to be met for neuroplasticity to take place. We examine the role that trust plays in business. When employees trust the organisation and its leaders, they're much more likely to believe in and get behind the changes and strategies to help get through the disruption. And we find out from one business how it maintained trust with its staff and customers throughout recent challenges. The customer's priority was keeping product on shelf, uh, and so that became our priority as well. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, the study of neuroscience, and in particular, how the brain builds trust, has become a focus point for leaders and companies that are looking to engage in a more meaningful way with their staff, society and key stakeholders. To look more closely at how the brain builds trust, I spoke to TEDx speaker and neuroscientist Dr Sarah Mackay. Dr Sarah Mackay, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation to chat. So you're an expert in studying the brain. Can you tell us a bit about neuroplasticity? Sure. Well, it's a big word Mm -hmm. with a lot of excitement around it, but it's how the brain and the nervous system change by experience. And there's lots of different biological routes by which this happens, and some are very, very fast and involve individual molecules and changes and patterns of electrical firing in the brain, and others are very large and long-term and take a great deal of experience to happen. We know the brains of infants and children and young people, teenagers are very, very plastic. Mm -hmm. So everything that they experience and think and do changes their brain. And that's less so the case, I suppose, in adulthood. We require very specific conditions to be met for neuroplasticity to take place. It can happen because, of course, we can learn all through our lives and we remember what we did yesterday and we can plan what we're going to do tomorrow. Uh, But our brains are not being changed by every single thing that we experience, like in childhood. So what role does neuroplasticity play in business and being adaptable then? There's three kind of conditions that we know are required. One is the need for attention or focus. And this is very much driven by a particular neuromodulator in the brain. Now, there's 86 billion neurons in the brain and there's a few thousand of them that play very specific modulatory roles. They're almost like the volume switch on your radio, the volume dial on your radio. And, mm-hmm. um, one of them is acetylcholine and that kind of determines your focus or your, your kind of level of arousal in the brain. So we need to be paying attention to something. The brain isn't going to be changing if it's not paying attention or not focused. The second is what you're doing, what you're thinking or feeling or behaving or learning or doing needs to be quite high stakes. You need a little bit of what I like to say is kind of neural fresh on. You, you know, it has to matter. There has mm-hmm. to be a carrot or there has to be a stick. You need some type of arousal or, or even level of stress mm-hmm. um, for, for that change to take place. 
And then the final one's perhaps not what people might expect, but it's to not (laughs) be aiming for any change. It's really sleep or deep, deep rest. And that's when our brain consolidates what we've learned. So that's when, I mean, one way to think about it might be plastic change takes place when we're learning something or experiencing something. It's a bit like moulding soft clay. Mm-hmm. When we sleep, it gets consolidated. That's when it kind of becomes fired and hardened in. And that's really, I suppose, as an adult, how we would see plasticity play out in the brain. So there's been a lot of talk about neuroscience and how the brain builds trust. What's your view on that? We might ask questions like, you know, how can we tell if someone's trustworthy or what is rapport? What is that kind of feeling of, hey, that person gets me, I I trust them. And then we can start boiling it down and taking a look at, at the neuroscience. But it does get tricky when we take a look at that in humans. It's harder, it's harder to look at humans and their brains than almost any other animal because humans really kind of object to little pieces of their brain being removed and studied by scientists. <laughs> and even imaging someone's brain in action, putting them in an fMRI machine and looking at what is happening in their brain when they are developing a trustful relationship with someone. I mean, that's they're not really developing a trustful relationship with someone or experiencing reduced social anxiety when they're in an fMRI machine. It's a, it's a very contrived environment. So we, we can kind of understand a little bit from behaviour, a little bit from psychology, and a little bit from, you know, what's happening in the animal kingdom to sort of start to, to understand that and then, I suppose, translate that into everyday behaviours, whether that be in the workplace or, you know, and in, in, in all of our social relationships. There's like the anecdotal thing of, you make decisions within seconds when you meet somebody whether you're going to trust them or not. And that is obviously something that is not a conscious thing. That's something subconscious. That's something that the brain is just making that decision. Um, What do you say about that? Because that plays a big role in trusting someone in a business Mm. sense and who you want to do business with usually is based on who you think you can trust. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, if we're thinking about the information our brain's receiving, that's primarily visual and also auditory, so what we're seeing and what we're hearing, and then we're filtering that through our our previous experiences. So there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of data being processed at any moment in time by our brains when we meet someone for the first time. I mean, we've all had that experience, oh, hey, you know, They get me, I get them, there's rapport, there's, Mm -hmm. you know, just this idea that you're in sync with each other. You know, there are these instinctual feelings we sometimes get, but but teasing apart what our brains are processing at any moment in time to figure out if we could perhaps engineer that um, to engender, you know, get someone else to trust us, that's, that's a tough ask of neuroscience. Mm. But I mean, okay, let's let's talk about the gut, which is often referred to as the second brain. So mm. when you hear someone say, I trust my gut on this, I'm mm. gonna go with it without any kind of external evidence to suggest that that's the right decision. A lot of leaders actually will say, I make decisions by my gut. And mm. I, I had a conversation the other day with one of my colleagues who said, 
my gut is telling me this. Um, yeah, yeah. And in the past when I've ignored my gut, I've always regretted it. Yeah. So that's that's not necessarily trust. That might be what we might call instinct or decision-making mm-hmm. that's not based on any kind of thoughtful process or following a strategic framework. It's based far more on what we would call instinct or gut feelings. Mm-hmm. And we know that people are far better at experiencing a gut feeling, following through, and that gut feeling proving correct when they are very experienced in the space they're working and when they are what we might call an expert or they're very well practiced. And that really comes about by our subconscious responses to these dozens and dozens of clues that are coming in. We're processing them very, very rapidly based on our previous experience. Mm -hmm. And experience proves to be one of the um, biggest contributors to those gut feelings being correct. Because we can have them and we all have them all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are the, the, the correct next move. So are you saying that those signals are happening so fast that we don't even register that they're based on past experience? Um, sometimes. I mean, I suppose if you're making an instinctual gut, you know, you're calling it a gut decision or you're basing that on some sensation that you have on your body, mm. you probably are basing it on previous experience. That, I mean, that's part of it because the, the evidence is very, very clear that, that professionals or experts, are, are f- their, their gut feelings are more reliable than novices. Mm-hmm. So in your view, how do we know when to trust someone? What are the, what are the cues or the clues that we... I mean, I guess we, we know the feeling when we do trust someone. And rather mm-hmm. than necessarily always using that word trust, we often say things like, oh, hey, they're on the same wavelength as me or mm-hmm. we're in sync mm-hmm. or they get me. And there's some really interesting research that has been done. We're calling it like two-person neuroscience. You get two people um, and you can scan their brains using various different techniques at the same time. And we see that when two people are in a relationship that is based on trust, where they know the other person, perhaps they're a family member, perhaps they're in a relationship with each other, or perhaps it's a long-term therapeutic relationship, for example, we can see when those two people are interacting that their brain waves even becoming in sync with each other. And that's the kind of the best neural fingerprint that we have of what happens when two people trust each other when they're in sync. If you're a parent, I often think about this, you, you know, your kid walks in the door if they come home from school and you know within an instant of seeing their face, whether they've had a good day or not, or if they're well or unwell, etc. Because you just know each other so well, you don't have to consciously ask them questions and kind of figure it out. You just know. And that's because you have learned and practiced and you have so many years and years of experience of reading each other's body language and facial expressions and all of those little micro expressions, the tone of voice, etc. that I've just spoken about. Dr. Sarah Mackay, thanks for joining the program. You're very welcome. For businesses building trust, it can be a lengthy and detailed process, which happens over time. And conversely, the loss of trust can happen very quickly with long-lasting impacts. To look at how organizational trust works and why it's so important for businesses to safeguard, I spoke to Nicole Gillespie, professor at UQ Business School and chair of KPMG Organizational Trust. 
Professor Nicole Gillespie, welcome to the program. Thank you, Whitney. So trust is usually hard fought for, built over years and lost very easily and quickly. What are the pitfalls for businesses and how do they avoid the loss of trust? So we've actually researched a lot of organisations that have become embroiled in a trust violation. And in each case, we find the trust failure was both predictable and preventable. So the problems that led to the loss of trust were typically widely known in the organisation, but weren't escalated or dealt with until it was too late. So one way to avoid the loss of trust is to take a proactive approach to surfacing and managing those trust issues rather than letting them fester and escalate. To do that, it requires fostering psychological safety in the workplace, making sure that there's mechanisms to support people to feel safe to speak up and raise problems. It requires having the capabilities to effectively deal with and fix problems and their root causes when they're raised. During the pandemic, how did the importance of trust change? I presume it was much more important than previously. Yeah, trust facilitates constructive responses and reduces uh, resistance to changes that are typically required to navigate through a disruptive event like the current pandemic. It influences the way we make sense of events. So when employees trust the organisation and its leaders, they're much more likely to believe in and get behind the changes and strategies to help get through the disruption. And that helps the organisation to rapidly adapt and be more agile and resilient. The paradox here, though, is that just when trust is most required, it's also often typically in shorter supply. So the uncertainty and unpredictability of pandemics and similar disruptive events often threaten trust. And research shows that it's really common for employee trust to actually decline during disruption and change. So we recently examined the practices that distinguish organisations that successfully preserved their employees' trust during a major disruptive event compared to those that lost it. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that employee trust can not only be preserved, but um, can actually even be enhanced during these sort of crises and disruptive events. But that requires organisations to be very proactive in reassuring their employees that their continued trust is warranted despite the change in circumstances. Um, Organisations are made up of people, Nicole. So how do you ensure that those in the organisation are following its values? It takes really proactive management. It's, it's, it's a challenge that a lot of organisations face. Mm. So organisational values need to be reinforced on a daily basis. What, ro- what leaders are role modelling at the top and throughout the organisation is really essential. And it's also important what happens when people violate core values or act contrary to them. When that happens, is that kind of conduct just ignored, um, which can signal that it's actually implicitly condoned? Or, Or do people actually speak up and intervene to signal to both the person and others who are watching that it's not acceptable? There's also a range of HR processes that can be used to embed values, um, onboarding of new employees, so ensuring that early socialisation into the business is reinforcing the right values. 360 assessment and feedback processes can be used, um, and that's helpful to gain insights on people. Performance appraisal and promotion systems are also a litmus test around this. Um, Another is employee awards, which can recognise and reward exceptional displays of core values. How does an organisation reinstate trust once it's been weakened or lost? It's very important to be proactive in restoring trust. And what our research shows is that trust can be effectively restored by answering key questions for stakeholders. So the first is what went wrong and why? And that can be achieved through inquiries, investigations, um, and we know that they're most effective when they're timely, they're comprehensive and they're independently conducted. 
The second question is about, well, how have organisational leaders got the organisation in order? Have they got their house in order? Can they prevent a future violation? The third question is, has the organisation learnt a lesson and made amends with stakeholders? So we know that social rituals and symbolic acts like public apologies, paying fines, um, punishments and reprimands, these are really important for trust repair. Um, And this is because they act as um, signals that the organisation and its leaders understand that their conduct was wrong, that they paid a price. Um, Research also shows that apologies are usually more effective when they're combined with substantive actions. So offering compensation um, along with an apology to avoid it seeming like just cheap talk. We also know that uh, when organisations voluntarily make these amends, um, it helps trust a lot more than when they're sort of ordered or forced to do so. Nicole, looking forward, what are the big challenges for organisations, businesses and sectors regarding the trust front? Yes, so look, one big challenge uh, comes from AI and emerging technology. How do we ensure that these emerging technologies are integrated into the business in a trustworthy and ethical way? Um, There's trust challenges around explainability, around bias, so how we ensure that those AI systems are not codifying historic biases. Uh, There's concerns around privacy, so we know that AI works best when it has access to large data sets. And that makes it really tempting for organisations to acquire and use all the data that they have irrespective of the user's consent. Um, And that's unfortunately led to quite a lot of violations of privacy. Uh, We actually did a recent national survey of over 2,500 Australians that showed that Australians' trust in AI systems is quite low. People reported low confidence in commercial organisations to develop and use AI in a responsible way. Um, A second big challenge is keeping abreast of evolving stakeholder expectations. So when organisations become out of touch with stakeholder expectations, it can rapidly undermine trust. Um, A good example is some of the resource companies um, that haven't yet started to diversify their portfolios away from fossil fuel, despite quite clear calls from stakeholders to do so. Um, So regularly obtaining high quality insights on stakeholder expectations and using that data to inform strategic decision making can really enhance trust um, as well as sustainability and profitability. Nicole Gillespie, thanks for joining the program. Thank you very much, Whitney. During the past couple of years, the pandemic has really tested the notion of trust that consumers have in businesses and how business maintains a high level of integrity in the face of massive challenges. One business that not only held on to its trusted reputation, but grew its levels of trust during this time is Swiss Wellness. To find out more, I spoke to the company's CEO, Nick Mann. Nick Mann, welcome to the program. Thanks, Whitney. Great to be here. So it's my understanding that you stepped into the role of CEO at Swiss in September 2019. The world was very different back then. What were your goals for the company initially? Yeah, certainly wasn't the the future that we all envisaged, (laughs) was it, in September 2019? Look, for us, you know, we, when we were planning 2020 and beyond, you know, we, we had this, this changing business dynamic where a lot of our business was exported to China. 
Uh, and we decided at the end of 2019 that we needed to focus on uh, Australian domestic customers and, and really start taking a little bit of the focus off the, the China export, which was already starting to decline a little bit. So for us, we, we'd sort of, we'd planned for the, the shape of the business, but certainly not the trajectory that it took. So mm. for us, it was a mad scramble to sort of bring two years worth of planning um, into two months, really. So uh, yeah, it was... Even though the, 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 the core principles of the strategy didn't change, certainly how we implemented changed very rapidly. Mm, and I, I would say uh, you probably weren't alone in that mad scramble. As the pandemic swept the globe, how did your goals change as a result? We set about, like many companies did, of, of kind of thinking how we were going to deal with the, the short, the medium and the long term. So, you know, really initially... Our, our goals were about, you know, how as an organisation do we exceed our civic responsibilities? Then how do we make sure that we put our team's wellness first? And then you know, the, the commercial outcomes really did become third in that, in that hierarchy. Mm. But look, really, as I spoke about before, that this total shift of our organisation to this really a maniacal focus on our domestic local consumers just became so much more prevalent in all of our goals and ambitions for for 2020 and it's carried through till now as well. Mm. In a pandemic situation, is it a good thing to be part of the wellness sector or is it kind of a difficult thing? Uh, look, it's a, it's ultimately it's a good thing. I mean, people have never been more conscious of their wellness and their health and that of their family and their friends. So, look, it's it's definitely been a good thing for our category, I suppose. I, I hate saying it was a good thing for our category. The dynamics within it changed a lot. But look, mm. our, our our corporate mission is to make billions of people and their pets now, we've just bought a pet company, um, oh, okay. you know, uh, healthy and happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in June, times of pandemic, being able to make people healthier and happier is obviously a good thing. And it, it shifted to immunity and to into products to help people sleep and products for anxiety. But mm. when it's all said and done, you know, for, for our business, people being more conscious of their well-being is, is a good thing. So, Nick, obviously, as people were affected by the pandemic in a range of ways, trust became a big factor in maintaining an equilibrium. How did you measure that trust was a focal point for Swiss? And trust is a fundamental pillar to our organisation. It, it always has been, right? Our core values are a trust, passion, one big team, celebrate life every day and be brave. Mm. And, you know, without a foundation of trust, none of those are possible. So we get to this, this COVID point and it's no longer dress rehearsal. It's This is mm. where these things really, really come into account. And we were lucky. I mean, we, we, all of, the, all of the, the work that we'd done creating these, these various pillars of trust um, paid off, and we were, you know, we had, we survived, and we thrived throughout throughout COVID and throughout lockdown and remote working. We, we'd always encouraged remote working, and we actually truly trusted our team to work remotely. So that was that was not much of a change. The way we look at it is that first and foremost, the, everyone in your organisation needs to trust your senior leaders, and then you have leaders needing to trust their team. You know, and most importantly, I think, can you do your leaders trust your team? to execute the plan or implement the plan um, without being micromanaged, right? And so these things all of a sudden in COVID become really, really, really important. Just on that, you know, your staff or your team trusting your leaders but also vice versa, 
how do you actually embed trust in a company's culture? Because that's actually quite a difficult thing because you have to look at trust through a different series of lenses. So how do you do that? And then what impact has that had on your staff and your business partners? Because you, you don't always get it right, right? No, you don't. You don't. And I think that, so we measure it, you know, a lot of our engagement survey results are around trust. So, mm. for, you know, our most recent survey showed that, and we're really proud of these stats, and I'll answer your question in a minute, but the proof is that, you know, 94% of our team here, there's about 300 people, feel genuinely trusted to work flexibly. 92% mm-hmm. feel that their direct manager genuinely cares about them. And 94% feel that their direct manager trusts them. So we know that what we're doing is right. And then in a recent Advantage survey, who survey the grocery industry, we were ranked number two supplier in health and beauty and baby. And that's, these are all the proof points that what we're doing is working really well. But how, how did we get to these outcomes is your question. And I think mm. it's about, a lot of it is about some of the things I was talking about before. You, don't, you can't go out to a group of people and say, hey, trust one another. It's really important <laughs> no, to trust. No, you can't. That's really what I mean. Trust. So, so leader, you go, and trust, go and trust your team to work out that. Yeah. It's really about putting the onus back on the senior leaders in your business. We spoke about it before and about, about understanding what trust means to your team. So for us, part of being a trusted organisation is that we, we absolutely embrace diversity. So uh, we, we look after the planet. So we're, we're targeting to be B Corp certified. We, mm-hmm. um, you know, we invest a lot in community and ESG initiatives. That sort of thing builds trust builds trust of your team in your group. Um, really encouraging failure is one of the best ways, I think, to... And and almost lauding failure. So people feel that they can um, they can absolutely be trusted to, to have a go and to make decisions without without fear. I think that, that ability to be autonomous and to just embed that in your leaders, that they need to delegate, they need to let their team make mistakes, let their team do the work, to have an environment that's not micromanaging. And it starts with your senior leaders, it really does, and making sure that we role model the right behaviours. But um, as we can see in those results, but throughout really targeting this at our our senior leader cohort and the behaviours that we want them to display and the, you know, the, the initiatives and the the work that gets rewarded and encouraged is a big part of that as well. In terms of customer trust, how did you maintain trust in the brand? Yeah, it was a really important point for everybody and and particularly, you know, as we went into COVID, we were all really worried about supply chains and we, I mean, our most complicated product has about 80 ingredients and a lot of them don't come from Australia. So were we going to be able to, to get the ingredients into the country? So you know, our ability to, to very quickly understand every element of the supply chain, identify all the risks and then communicate with our customers and keep them reassured that we are going to be able to keep our products in stock on their shelves. And that in turn really helps consumers trust your brand. Um, having product on shelf every time they go into the supermarket or every time they go online is very important and it was very important throughout this phase. So, Nick, now that we're entering a COVID kind of normal world, what role will trust play going forward for Swiss? We're in this interesting short-term phase, aren't we, where we're all grappling with hybrid working mm-hmm. and what does that mean? I think this is a, this is a really interesting tentpole moment for trust when we're deciding if we let teams 
choose their own working environments and their own working cadence. We, we've chosen to say it is entirely up to you about how you decide to, to lead your team when it, with respect to hybrid working and return to office. Then I think we're going to have a really interesting um, couple of years with, um, there's a lot of phrases for it, but the great resignation. And there is a lot of, of churn in the employment market at the moment. And, mm. you know, we see that there are, you know, we've got a, a pretty young group here. Their probably average age is around about 30 and they're in high demand, and and so we're being uh, we're being challenged with our team. So how do we retain some of our really top talent? And I think part of that gets back to you know again empowering them and giving them more opportunity and trusting perhaps trusting their ability a little bit beyond what their experience would, and and us taking a risk on them as well. So that'll be another really demonstrable moment. But when it's all said and done, you know, that the core fundamentals that drive trust in our organisation, it doesn't change. For you as a CEO, because you were maybe six months that you were in the role before kind of COVID really hit, is that about Yeah, that? I think so. Yeah, five or six. So, I mean, new company, all that kind of stuff and a new role and then this massive thing hits. For you as a CEO, coming out of it, what's your what's your key takeaway? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Well, I, we're kind of not out of it. I think that's an important thing well, to know. Well, we're not, but I mean, we're, we're emerging, I guess, yeah. We are emerging. And I think the fact that we come out of this with, with really, really loyal team uh, is something I'm really proud of. And I think that's something we can't take for granted moving forward. So yeah, that's the first thing. The second thing, I just loved seeing leaders that were perhaps teetering on the edge of, of really trusting their teams to work remotely and, and really trusting their ability to hire a new e-commerce person that you know lives in Byron or a team member moves to to Brisbane, uh, and we've functioned so well with the team being dispersed around the country that um, people feel a lot more liberated. So that notion of you know, being able to really focus on your team's well-being, make sure that they they truly love the organisation because of how much we we care and trust them, and then that just reminded me how important that single-minded focus of your organisation and getting everyone being able to strive for the one thing and blocking out all of the other noise really helped us get through. And that's something that I'll, I'll always continue to do is to think about other business distractions almost like the COVID of the future. Nick Mann, thanks for joining the program. Thank you very much for having me. All right, well, that's all for the show. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the program. If you're interested in checking out Dr. Sarah Mackay's TEDx speech, check out the show notes. That's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Whitney Fitzsimmons. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. 